you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. In 2016, I think it was more just like, this is such a massive story. There was like an endless appetite for content about this story. And so podcasting was going to kind of take off in that way. From LA Studios, this is Servant of Pod. I'm Nick Kwa. Today, we look back on the 2016 election podcast explosion with Jody Avergan, host of This Day in Esoteric Political History. Jody Avergan's journey into the world of election podcasts was half strategic and half baptism by fire. A few years ago, he knew he wanted to cover the 2016 election and found a home at 538, Nate Silver's data-driven political news and analysis website. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. My name is Jody Avergan. There are just three weeks left until Election Day and we are going to focus on who plans on turning out and which groups of voters could make the difference for either party. In particular, we will talk about the gender gap and how powerful... Jody knew their podcast project was a good idea, but he couldn't have known just how big it would become. When you have a story that is that overwhelming. Yeah, it's going to lift all the boats. And so, you know, I think I've even with you chatted about kind of like, if you're in Brazil and there's a World Cup, and you have a World Cup podcast, your podcast is going to be big, just because the story is that big. Now, I also think there were particular things about podcasting and particular things about the show that we were working on and the other shows that were successful that helped. But I also... I don't want to dismiss the fact that it's just a massive story. And when you're covering a massive story, you feel it. And, and, you know, I felt it like immediately, right? Like we formally launched that show pretty late. And within two weeks, the show felt fully formed. Like it had its own sort of backstory, its own sort of history. We were getting letters from people referencing stuff that we had been said on the show as if it's stuff we said all the time when we'd actually only done like two episodes. Like I could just feel the like rocket ship of that show, but also just the news taking off and it never really slowed down ever, I guess. When people were responding to the show strongly, what were they responding to? What did they want from you guys from, from your perspective? It's interesting. I mean, I mean, I think, you know, certainly at 538, the ethos is we're going to help cut through the bullshit narratives and try and bring some data-centric, more empirical analysis and context. And so I think when you find yourself in an election and in a world that feels like it is sprinting away from rationality and empiricism, Uh, you know, there's a certain sector of the population that kind of really responds to media or conversation that tries to really like hold on to that. I also think, and this gets to some of my kind of basic ideas just about why podcasting is powerful. I also think people responded to just like the nature of the group that we had and the chemistry that we had and the fact that, you know, and this was intentional. Like we worked a lot on like the chemistry on the show and recognized that that was a big part of the show. And and there was even a point, 
I think it wasn't until 2017, but but Micah Cohen, one of the co-hosts of the show, I think he asked at one point, he said, you know, is there anyone out there who listens to this podcast who doesn't like politics or doesn't follow politics? And we got like, <laughs> we got dozens and dozens of emails back from people saying, yeah, I just kind of like hanging out with you. And it was just such a nice reminder that this medium in particular is about chemistry and intimacy and all those buzzwords that we maybe feel a little icky about because they're buzzwords, but they are actually true. You know, that was a big part of it is I think we just had a show with good chemistry and people like to spend time with us. Well, that that sort of a chemistry-driven conversational format seemed to be like the format standard for the genre. Um, I'm thinking about the other ones like Slate Political Gap Fest. Been around for a very long time. Kind of feels like the sort of like master format here. And then, you know, there was the NPR Politics podcast. I think one of the critiques that came out after 2016 was that the format itself was part of this problem in which, like, it created this sense of a self-reinforcing bubble. So, you know, I will I will offer a mild defense there of, like, the bubble in the sense of, like, you want to have your world, you want to have your, your lingo, you want to feel like people want to join something that feels familiar. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't introduce new perspectives and new voices and so forth. But I also think people like their comfort zone. It's called a comfort zone for a reason. You know, I will say on the 538 podcast, one of the things that I really liked about doing it and and just kind of one of the reasons I wanted to work at 538 was because I found this challenge of marrying kind of dispassionate, analytical approach with well, we need to show some personality to be very compelling. And like I thought one of, that was one of the successful things of that podcast was it took a site and a kind of journalism that sometimes can be a little a little more difficult to find quote unquote voice. And uh, on the podcast, you know, it naturally, you know, in every sense of the word, has to have voice. And I thought that was really healthy for the site. I kind of liked the little tension there between um, those two sides of the mm-hmm. site. And it was something we always played with and was at times challenging, too, to find that line. But I found that particularly compelling as just someone who was trying to make the thing each week. Let's go back to 2016 a little more. Um, you should char- charge you for therapy. Let's go back to 2016 a little more. Let's really like let's pick at those scabs. Okay, yeah, that's. I mean, yeah. I was I was going to actually go to a not too far direction there. So 2016, like, was that election cycle? I feel was very formative for me writing about podcasts because sure. I was watching this cohort grow up, and you know when I think about that period, I, I think about like there's a couple of moments that really stood out to me of like oh, there's something with this medium that's really punching well above its weight. Mm-hmm. And the proliferation of like 538 and, and, and peer politics and that kind of show was a big part of that. But it was also these sort of really key tangible moments, like when Hillary Clinton showed up on Another Round, for example. Well, before we get started, we saved you some bourbon. We don't oh. know if you'll partake. Oh, but... I've got so much still to do. If it were, if, if this were the last event of my day, I uh-huh. would take you up on it. Okay, well, rain check <laughs> next it. Okay, rain okay. check. And got since it. you won't drink it, I guess I'll have to. <laughs> so that moment uh, was where I started feeling that the older rules didn't apply anymore. That there was an opportunity here for something new. D- do you remember that episode? I do remember that episode. That was relatively late that they announced it. And, you know, I mean, I don't know. At the time, like, that didn't pop to me as necessarily a sign of, like, oh, podcasting has has reached a new level. I mean, it felt like... Well, let me put it this way. After the election, I did an interview with someone who said, like, do you think podcasting had a effect on this election? Hmm. And, you know, to me... 
I think the answer was pretty clearly no. Like, I think podcasting had a moment. It was replacing a lot of legacy media. It was like convening a certain kind of conversation, but I don't think it reached a level where it was like shifting one way or another. Hmm. You know, I'm curious what you think. I wouldn't be surprised if even maybe by 2018, that answer might have been slightly different. Yeah. You know? Uh, By the time we had institutions built, like the Daily, for example. Yeah. And even like... We haven't mentioned Pod Save America, which I think, you know, which at yeah. the time was keeping it 1600 and then turning to Pod Save America, you know, and, and I mean, I think like they obviously very different kind of charge than a place like 538. But, you know, by the time they got to 2018, they were really like organizing and mobilizing and I think like maybe did have like some effect. And it's hard to disentangle all these things because there was already going to be a wave in 2018. And so were they just more a reflection of it than a cause? You know, but I think... um, Right. But I do think like at that point, they were showing the power of a podcast to like organize people in a really compelling way. Um, And I think, you know, there's equivalence on the right as well. But in 2016, I think it was more just like, this is such a massive story. There was like an endless appetite for content about right. this story and right. so podcasting was going to kind of take off in 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 that way yeah party america was definitely something that i want to talk about uh, and it was one of the moments that really stood out to me was the creation of keeping the 1600 but yeah so that question that you raised here like whether podcasting had any impact for the most part for a long time i i think i came down where you did which is the answer is no I, it was it was it the election forged that genre and, and forged the medium in a lot of ways but uh, ultimately, it didn't lead to any sort of specific outcomes. And I think I've kind of softened on that position because it, I think it's, this is like the eternal question with uh, news media in particular, sort of, yeah. do, are we overestimating its impact in some ways? And are we underestimating its impact in, in other ways? And I feel like here, for me, at least, no, I don't think it had a direct impact that like it didn't change the outcome of a race. But it did, I feel like, solidify certain feelings. And it did sort of contribute to this culture of like politics as entertainment. And, yeah. I felt, and I, I, don't, I don't think that's insignificant or immaterial. Well, and, and you know, and, and to your point about bubbles, I mean, I think certainly like you look at the taxonomy of like Chapel Trap House and Pod Save America, Joe Rogan, Ben Shapiro, you know, like I think you certainly can see, you know, we're living in an age of these bubbles and these silos and podcasts are either reflecting or reinforcing that or so forth. You know, I'm going to say something very glib here, but like to, to the, and, and that I'm thinking of for the first time, but like to your question of did it affect the race? Like one concrete example of in favor of saying it did not affect the race is that for several weeks on the 538 podcast we were sitting there going the midwest might be a problem for hillary clinton like she may want to go there like we may want like and they didn't in a way that maybe they should have and um and we ended up where we did uh again that's glib but like you know in a world in which the most influential people are listening to the podcast and taking their cues and it has like the kind of real impact that maybe other mediums have or had in the past maybe nate says you know, Michigan seems like it could be a problem. And the Clinton campaign sort of realizes that, you know, there's a million reasons why Clinton didn't win that campaign. The Comey letter was, no one could have expected (laughs) that, you know, we can get into all that, but, um, hyper chaotic multivariable reality. When we, when we sit here and we make the list of media that affected the 2016 election, you put Facebook up there, you maybe put Twitter up there. I don't think podcasting is in that echelon. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely not. And I think that's that's a bit of the point here is sort of, while it did not play that outsides of a role, like it did play some role. And sure. that is not insignificant, I think. And for, no. for especially people who are activated by those podcasts. So I, and that kind of leads me to the second thing that really sort of stood out to me during 2016, which is even then I felt like 
when shows like Keeping It 1600 came out, when Chapo started like bubbling up, when the New York Times released the run-up, mm-hmm. I had to sort of really distinct sense that we're looking at the beginning of some institutions here. And it kind of happened that way, especially after uh, 2016 turned out the way it did. Like a lot of the big shows we have today were sort of seated in that moment. And, yeah. it, and it, I, I don't know if you felt that way when you sort of saw the early versions of those in 2016, but like I remember listening to those shows and I'm like, I think this is going to be around for a long time. I maybe didn't feel it as in the way because when you're in it, you know, it's more just like we're covering a story and I just want to get to like November, you know, and, and get some sleep. Um, and I could <laughs> tell that like others were doing that same thing. But I will also say immediately after the election, I recognized that A, you know, news is not going anywhere and this conversation that 2016 prompted is not going anywhere and we're going to yeah. have to... We're going to have to grapple with our new reality for years to come. But the other thing I recognized was that, you know, I'm a, I'm a sort of watcher of the podcast space as well. And I recognized like, oh, all these politics podcasts have like a pivot moment right now. There's like a real challenge in front of them right now. Hmm. And I just sort of like could see how each show grappled with that moment. I didn't have much time to listen to other shows, but I did go and listen to everyone's first episode after the election just to hear Mm. kind of how they took it on because it was so, I mean, for us, you know, that was one of the more memorable shows I've ever hosted and it was just kind of like a big moment and I think it had a, uh, it was sort of polarizing and a lot of people kind of like couldn't listen to it or listen to it and then unsubscribed or listened to it and felt like a deeper bond with the show. But, you know, like I could tell keeping it 1600 Right. Maybe they had changed the Pod of America by that point, had the biggest challenge in that moment. Right, they had the big mea culpa episode. We've all grown up in the Obama administration, and we were taught to not worry about the horse race and focus on the substance and to focus on the stakes and keep our heads down. And I think if it's fair to say that at times on this podcast, we got away from that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> you know, know what, though, and, and I just want to say that um, I think going forward, it's going to do us all some good to focus a little less on... Um, what's going to happen in politics and a little more on what the stakes are for for real people. Yeah, and I thought that was right and I thought they nailed it and I thought that they had the most divergent paths. Like, you know, maybe this is too extreme, but I think there was some version of their first show after the election that doesn't go well and that thing maybe completely falls apart or something. And I've (laughs) talked to them a little bit about that and, and they recognized that that was like a big moment. And it wasn't just about a mea culpa for them. I think it was about a like, we've learned some lessons and we are going to, you know, put one foot in front of the other and go forward in this way. The Slate Gap Fest, I think I've just always admired that show. It has a lot of the sort of core ingredients we've been talking about. And I think that they, you know, throughout the election and then post-election were just in many ways best positioned to just say like, we are who we are, you know, like we've always been a show that has just kind of like tried to be clear-eyed about the world and all the complexities Mm. of it. So they were able, I think, to just kind of keep moving forward. And every other show had like, you know, their lane and their angle, and they had to sort of like grapple with that lane and that angle in a new reality. I think the the post-election episode that I remember the most is the one from On the Media, which I know you're uh-huh. a big fan of. I, you know, I hope that it's uh, some sort of clarion call, but I, you know, I, what I most hope, Brooke and Kat and producers and audience, is that we are not all passengers on the ship of fools. What the fuck I don't know does what that, that mean, mean either. <laughs> what does that the, mean? What does it mean? Why would you want to end on the line of we're all going to hell? 
<laughs> and to me, like that's I feel like yeah, I think it really I mean, captures the moment. Yeah, no, I mean, on our show, you know, we had a really tough episode, and we had a lot of like back and forth, and you know, I was in a. I was more than anything, I was just tired. But, you know, I was in a place where I was like, really? I was hit. You know, there's a bit of a trope of like 538 and others sort of botched the 2016 election in terms of prediction. And I, you know, I have all sorts of arguments about why I thought 538 actually did a pretty good job of predicting it. And, you know, 30% chance things happen all the time. Um, You know, (laughs) but I will say like the way that I describe kind of the mood in that room and the way the site sort of met that moment was you know, shocked but not surprised was kind of where my head was mm. at. And I think, like, I wanted to be honest to those feelings. And I remember, you know, in, the, in those conversations, like, we were like, well, this was, you know, this was something we expected could happen. Um, and it happened in X, Y, and Z ways. And this is going to set up a really compelling and interesting and unprecedented moment in American politics. And, you know, I remember asking on that show, like, you know, but at what cost? And, you know, I think that those conversations... Like, you you know, that Brooke and Bob exchange is perfect. You know, it's like you have your right brain and your left brain and they're just like smashing together <laughs> in real time. And you have to just kind of like be honest to that. Yeah. And again, I think podcasts are really good for that. Podcasts are really good for like talking through what you know and don't know. And so I was just grateful to have that space to sort of process while at the same time trying to help make sense of it. So after the 2016 crunch, Jody wasn't going to do another elections podcast for 2020. He's done with that type of grind. But he's not done with politics. More in a minute. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, July 16, 1863, riots are spreading throughout New York City. They had started a couple days earlier in Lower Manhattan. Now they had spread to Brooklyn and Staten Island. Houses and businesses burning, mobs of people with bats and clubs roaming the streets. And the reason? A civil war draft. The riot was in response to a new draft that had been... You might notice nowadays that Jody isn't talking about election polls. Instead, he is co-hosting This Day in Esoteric Political History with Columbia political historian Nicole Hemmer. You earlier kind of asked me what I learned throughout 2016. One of the things I've definitely learned about myself as a host is I I think I really like to be surrounded by 
people who are smarter than me and experts. And I actually, you know, and so like having Nikki, who's actually a historian and is really wonderful. And, you know, I love talking with her, but she also just like knows her stuff is really nice. And uh, that's definitely growth on my part to realize that like, oh, you're, you're better if you're the least smart person in the room. Yeah. And it feels like this is, it feels like you're, you can take a little bit of a breather with this show. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of a breather in that we, you know, we, we intentionally are not talking about the latest you know, crazy thing that has happened in the world. We're looking at history and then trying to sort of draw some connections. Mm. But I think it also, I wanted to do this show and in general, I'm very drawn to history. And I think like you can see it in the rise of media over the last few years. Like history is having a moment. I think people are looking to the past. People are recognizing that there are lessons from the past, not tidy lessons, but like Mm. things to, you know, like I was saying before, things that can kind of give you space to think and process. And so, you know, we we did some historical stuff at 538. Um, Some of my favorite moments were when we would just look at a past election and sort of draw some lessons. And then my work at 30 for 30, you know, that's a history podcast. And I really liked doing stuff there that, was about the past, but, you know, the themes and the lessons and some of the echoes were very apparent and would help us process this current moment. And this show is very much inclined towards that as well. And I've really personally, and I think we're hearing from audiences that that's happening. Like people are just sort of appreciating hearing something from the past that again, like walks you right up to the edge of then giving you some, you know, a few more tools to help process the present. Right. So I listened to the show a bunch, big fan of it. Thank you. This sort of thing of talking about a moment in history could be 40 years ago, could be 100 years ago, and trying to rhyme it with the present somehow. Whenever I listen to the show, I am both comforted by the feeling that this too shall pass. That's a a big reason why I go to the show is just to get that little bit of solace that way. But I also get a bit of some of a melancholia associated with like, <laughs> oh shit, we're doing this again? Like, we're yeah. going through this again? That's very well articulated kind of like what history does to us. And, you know, that first one is one that I've always been a little uncomfortable with. Like, I don't want history to be a salve, right? I don't want history to be something mm. of like, well, that we got through that, so we will get through this. And like, well, we got through that, and a lot of people suffered, and a lot of people had to work really hard. And a lot put, of people died. And, and a lot of people, yeah, and a lot of people like put their ass on the line to affect change. And, you know, and so that's as much of a lesson as this too shall pass. But I also, again, you know, don't want to dismiss that simple comfort of just like, you know, and, and with the coronavirus in particular, like, this happens to me all the time. Like I have, I just have to keep reminding myself that like, this is a temporary thing, this pandemic, like a year from now. Oh God, I'm going to say something that I might regret, but like (laughs) no matter how incompetent our government is like a year from now, the pandemic will probably be over. And I have to remind myself of that while at the same time recognizing how awful it is and and all the other things it shows us about the state of our country and, and, and so forth. So, you know, I think, yes, you're right. History kind of, does that for me but then oh god the like we're repeating ourselves we're making all the same mistakes of the past i mean that is just like you know that has emerged as probably the number one theme Hmm. from the show and i don't know what to do with that other than to say like let's try and not make those mistakes again (laughs) does working on the show make you reconsider the use of the word unprecedented yeah, it does. I think it might be in the show description, I don't, but you know, it it probably we should probably take it out. Um, but <laughs> here here's why I don't want to use unprecedented. Like, I don't think we need to measure 
it's not a competition between the present and the past. Yeah. What we're feeling now is real. What we're feeling now, like, you know, I, and, and I hate using the past as like a weapon to dismiss the present. What happened in the past was intense and, and hard mm. and, and we should learn lessons. And what's happening now is real and intense and hard and we have to confront it. And, you know, we should not diminish it using the past. So, you know, an unprecedented has a little hint of that. So, you know, I mean, like mm. tumultuous times uh, is probably the, the right phrase. And it just sort of acknowledges what's what that we're actually living through, you know, some real stuff. Ah, one of the greater linguistic cliches, tumultuous. Um, I know, I know. But, you know, these words exist for a reason. They keep getting <laughs> trotted out for a reason. Uh, I want to wrap up by looking at the broader sort of election slash political podcast yeah. landscape today. We're seeing a lot more right-wing conservative podcasts in 2020, which now I feel like challenges this narrative about podcasting that it is sort of like a largely left-leaning medium, both in terms of its production and consumption. Are you seeing the same thing at all? Um, I think, I mean, I think it's, look, the right has always had talk radio. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we still undervalue how critical talk radio has been to the right over the last yeah, you're, 30 years. Uh, I believe your co-host is somebody who wrote a book on that. Correct. And Nikki's whole thing is she looks at sort of conservative media. You know, this is the cliche. The right has always owned talk radio. The left has never been able to kind of get there. I mean, they've tried Air America and so forth. And podcasts maybe kind of have started to, to reach that. You know, I mean, I think on the right, I think as the medium grows, you will inevitably see the various factions in our country find their way into the medium. And, you know, and, and obviously like Joe Rogan is a really good example of a sort of not traditionally left-wing podcast empire growing. And I think hmm. Ben Shapiro has a lot of listeners as well. And so, you know, you, you're seeing that. But I still don't feel like there's the electricity around right-wing podcasting ecosystem as there mm. is on the left even in this cycle but you know maybe maybe i'm wrong um but yes i agree i mean like there's a podcast called we the fifth which i you mm-hmm. know often disagree with vehemently in terms of their politics but i think it's a wonderful podcast in terms of it's good faith and i think it is um got really good chemistry and so forth and that's a show that is like convening you can tell it's convening a lane and it's building its audience and i think mm. it's going to have a big year i think you're certainly starting to see that it's not just lefty podcasts out there the other thing that i feel is a pretty stark observation that i have is that there's just f- fewer new political podcasts now yeah. there's like there's fewer show generation and i i kind of feel like they have two prevailing theories here maybe they're they're both uh, in cahoots one is the fact that you know we're going through a pandemic it is it is the all-consuming story and it, it just feels like the lane is now clogged so not just uh political podcasts like pots of america and, and everything crooked media uh, but also just the proliferation of news podcasts. Yeah, over the like past daily years. shows. Yeah, exactly. A daily news podcast. Yeah. And it feels like a lot of the functions that a new political election podcast would have served are largely taken up by either the news podcast or these prevailing from 2016 political podcasts like yeah. 538, like Pots of America. You know, I think a lot of that has to do with the pandemic took over. And I also think like there's going to be this interesting moment it's going to come later than it often does, but I think there is going to be a moment in like August or September where people are going to say, oh, right, the election, right? Uh, right. And sort of snap back at there. And so who knows? But the notion of starting an elections podcast right now actually feels really weird, like weird and off <laughs> and like not of the moment, even though yeah. like we are having the most important election of our lives. And to say it's weird to have something like dedicated to that. I don't know. I, I'm trying to sort of process through that feeling. I will say, though, it is a moment where... 
every story feels like it is connected. Every story is intertwined. You can't talk about politics without talking about race, without talking about voter access, without talking about the pandemic, without talking about inequality. And elections refract those things, and they've always been about everything. But a show that is like, we're going to look at the mechanics of the election, and we're just going to follow the twists and turns of the election feels like inadequate for the moment in the way that we were describing. Like, Mm. I think the best approach to the moment now is like, open and versatile and like able to take all these different strands that are colliding together and talk about them. And so, you know, weirdly, I feel like the slate gab fests of the world, which were always wired that way, which were never like, here's our little segment and our little specific perspective. It was more like, we're just smart, interesting people who are going to try and process the world. Those shows are, I think are going to be in a good position Mm -hmm. um, because that's just kind of what this moment is demanding of us is like more kind of bigger thinking. And then the daily shows are interesting too, but I think the daily shows do that too. Like they can just do one angle one day, another angle the other day, another angle the other day, and in totality then feel like they're sort of taking on every strand that that is swirling right now. So essentially the task right now is to piece the world together. Yeah, I think that's right. And to just like give yourself the space and the ability to like be open to a moment where all the rules are out and all the conversations are colliding. And, you know, I think that's one of the like hopeful things about this moment is that we're living in a politics of people recognizing that everything is connected, right? Mm-hmm. And that you can't just kind of like have your opinions about economics without being forced to think about race and you can't have your opinions about race without being forced to think about inequality and you can't think about schools without thinking about housing and like you know it's just kind of like yeah we have to have our head around all of these things together what are you listening to these days that you're you're enjoying i you mentioned on the media i still think on the media is one of the best shows i was really excited to join radiotopia just because i think you know they shows like the heart which just came back to radiotopia and everything is alive it's kind of amazing to say that i have any sort of affiliation with 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 shows like that ear hustle there's a new show man this sounds like i'm going to be a shill but this new show from la is california love like i'm (laughs) really impressed by that it's you know it sounds fantastic um i still really like fresh air (laughs) (laughs) that is staples the classic yeah yeah Jody, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. Nick, thank you. Yeah, this was great. Servant of Pod is written and hosted by me, Nick Kwa. You can check out more episodes at elias.com slash servantofpod. Web design by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Southern California Public Radio. Logo and branding by Leo G. Thanks to the team at LA Studios, Christian Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. Servant of Pod is a production of LA Studios. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. 
one lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.